So as you read the Bible, have you ever noticed that we're given all the details that lead up to the moment where the stone is rolled in front of the tomb? And then the story doesn't pick up again until Mary Magdalene and some other ladies, they arrive early Sunday morning and Jesus isn't there. Not one place in all of scripture tells us what happened between the two. There's nothing to tell us exactly about the moment where Jesus steps out of the tomb. Listen to Matthew 27, 57 to 61. As evening approached, Joseph, a rich man from Arimathea, who had become a follower of Jesus, went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. And Pilate issued an order to release it to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a long sheet of clean linen cloth. He placed it in his own new tomb, which had been carved out of the rock. And then he rolled a great stone across the entrance and left. Both Mary Magdalene and, and another Mary were sitting across from the tomb and they were watching. Now, the story picks up in verse 62 of that same chapter. It says, the guard at the tomb the next day on the Sabbath, the leading priests and Pharisees, they went to see Pilate and they told him, they said, sir, we remember what that deceiver once said. While he was still alive after three days, I will rise from the dead. So we request, request that you seal the tomb until the third day, and this will prevent his disciples from coming and stealing his body and telling everyone that he was raised to life. If that happens, we'll be worse off than we were at first. Pilate replied, take guards and secure it the best that you can. So they sealed the tomb and they posted guards to protect it. That's day two. Sunday morning, Matthew 28, verses 1 through 6. Early on Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. Suddenly there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and rolled aside the stone and sat on it. His face shone like lightning and his clothes were as white as snow. And the guards shook with fear when they saw him and they fell dead faint. Then the angel spoke to the women, don't be afraid, he said. I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He has risen from the dead just as he said would happen. Come and see where his body was laying. So this is the question I've been wrestling with all week. What was it like when Jesus stepped out of the tomb? The biggest moment in history since the creation of the world, he steps out and not one person is there. No greater moment in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ than to conquer sin and death. He's raised from the dead. The greatest miracle of them all, he steps out and no one came. 
As you read the story, it's safe to assume that even by then the guards who had fallen faint from fear from the angel, that they had run. I mean, in his life, thousands of people would gather. The feeding of the 5,000, right? It said that those were just men alone. There could have been tens of thousands of people there on that day, but on this day, he's by himself. What must have been the feeling in Jesus' heart where he did all that he had done for us and not one person had come to see? Okay, so if that had been me, right? I would have maybe had some thoughts like this. It wasn't easy living a perfect life. (laughs) He was perfect in every way. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Listen to what it says. This high priest of ours, he understands our weaknesses, right? He was fully God, but he was also fully man, which meant that he was susceptible to every temptation that you and I are susceptible to. He understands our weakness, Not because he studied it, not because he created it, not because someone told him about it, but because he lived it himself for 33 years. He faced, listen to what it says, all the same testings and temptations that we do, yet not one time did he sin. Listen to what John 15, 19 says. So Jesus explained, I tell you the truth, the Son of Man can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the Father doing, whatever the Father does, the Son also does. These two verses are important for us because it helps us understand that there are two kinds of sin in this world, right? There's the times where we sin because we do something we're not supposed to do, and then there's times when we sin because we didn't do something that we should, right? These two verses tell us that Jesus not only never did anything that he wasn't supposed to do, he always did everything that he was supposed to. Have you ever stopped to think That of all the things that Jesus felt in this life, the one thing he never felt was regret. Not one time. At the end of every day, think of how many days you felt regret because of the choices that you made that day or remembering a day from long ago. Something you did you shouldn't have or something you should have, but you didn't. Every day that came to an end for Jesus, he never once felt regret because he lived a perfect life. Now, you would think that that would have been enough just for one person to be there on that day. You would think that somebody, through the three years of Jesus' ministry, that someone would have said, He lived a perfect life. Let's just go and wait just in case he comes out. He was miraculous, right? If this was me, I would say, I did some pretty phenomenal things while I was here. We like participation here at City Life. When you read through the Bible, what's one of your favorite miracles that Jesus performed? You raise your hand, I'll point to you. What's one of your favorite miracles? In the back, is that Jamal? Teleporting, Teleporting. yeah, right? He's in one place, and then he's somewhere else. Somebody else, favorite miracle? Don't be acting all shy because it's Easter. Come on, in the back. Lazarus, yeah, he's in the tomb for four days. Four days, raised to life. Garland. Walking on 
the water. Somebody else. Favorite miracle that Jesus performed? Turn the water into wine. Yeah, come on. If he'd have been in Kentucky, it would have been bourbon. If he'd have been in Ireland, it would have been Guinness. Extra stout, right? Somebody else. Jen. I think forgiving a whole sin of the world is like the biggest Yeah, forgiving the sins of the world. Oh, I can't follow that now. Yeah, come on, you can try. Yeah, healing blindness. Somebody else. The woman with the issue of blood. That's powerful, right? Because it tells us that he didn't even initiate that miracle. That she reached out to him and he felt power leave his body. Come on, this section over here has been quiet. Somebody else, Alyssa. Feeding the 5,000. Yes, Nathaniel. Walking through crowds that wanted to kill him. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there were times where people wanted to take his life and there was supernatural provision of power. Anybody else? Somebody else. Chuck. Put the ear back on. Yeah, in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Peter, he's a fisherman. Why did they give him the sword? Misses his mark, cuts off Malchus's ear. Jesus picks it up and heals him. You know, one of my favorites is the widow of Nain. Anybody know that story? The widow of Nain, it's the town that she lived in. She's a widow, and it says her only son had just died. And we're given this picture in Scripture where there's a funeral procession that's coming out of the town, making their way to the place where he's going to be interred. And you can imagine the weeping and the mourning and the sorrow that was happening, right? And then it says that Jesus is making his way to the city. And you know, that's a whole different kind of attitude in this group of people. They're celebrating and laughing. They believe that the the Messiah has come. And then the Bible says that these two groups of people met and Jesus just reaches up and touches the box that the boy is in and he sits up. You would think that he would have been there that day. Where was he? Where are the blind people that he gave sight to? What about all the lepers that, that, were, that, that could never be in society ever again? Never any human contact ever again. Where were they? What about the people at the, at the feast, at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, right where he turns the water to water? You would think that one person would have showed up on Sunday morning just to see if it were true. What about the demoniac? What about Lazarus himself? Now, come on. You would think Lazarus, of all people, would have believed that somebody can come back from the dead because he had done it. Do you think maybe when Jesus stepped out of there, he was thinking, maybe nobody else is gonna come but I bet Lazarus is gonna be there waiting for me. And I did it a day sooner than him. But he's not there. Not one person showed up on that day. He lived a perfect perfect life. He lived a miraculous life. Just one of them should have been enough for someone to come, but they didn't. He lived a selfless life. Listen to Luke 9, 57 to 58. As they were walking along, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus replied, foxes have dens to live in and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to even lay his head. 
Jesus basically camped for three years straight. That alone would have been enough for me to come because I hate camping. Right? Who are my campers in here? Any campers? Yeah? Now, some of you have heard this story before. We shared it a long time ago. The first time and the only time that we've ever been camping as a family, our kids were elementary school, and they wanted to go camping so bad. Vanessa and I hate camping. Right? Give me a thermostat. I want movies on demand. I want a Starbucks around the corner. You with me? Come on. If, there's, if, if it's supposed to be vacation, you're supposed to be able to pick up the phone and tell somebody that you need something, and they come. Well, they don't have that at campsites, Right? The park ranger, you call him. He's not interested in bringing you pizza. So we go. Vanessa had her list of things that she was supposed to bring. I had my list of things that I was supposed to bring. And we're riding on, on our way to Lake Anna State Park to go camping. And, you know, and we have that vibe of, yeah, we're the parents of the year, right? We don't like it, but our kids like it. We were telling them we could just build you a fire in the backyard, but that wasn't enough. Right? They wanted to go somewhere and camp. And so we get to the campsite, and we're, we're unpacking everything. And we've got a tent for Vanessa to sleep in with the kids, and, but it was too small. And so we had borrowed a second tent that I was going to sleep in. And so Vanessa's setting up that tent, and I went to the van to get the tent that I was going to sleep in. And I said, honey, where's the tent that you brought for me? Yeah, oh no, was right, David. We might still need some marriage counseling, even though this was a long time ago. And there was a long, silent pause. And I said, you packed the second tent, right? A long, silent pause. So I think, you know, how bad could it be? I'll sleep out under the stars. I've got an air mattress. I settle in for the night, and somewhere deep into the middle of the night, maybe the Bible would call it the second watch, I heard something at my feet. thought maybe one of the kids are up, and they've got to go pee. And so I open my eyes and look down at my feet, and I see these glowing eyes staring back at me. It was a raccoon the size of something out of Jurassic Park. <laughs> and I sat right up and thought to myself, surely that would be enough to startle this raccoon. And he's looking at me like, is that all you got? <laughs> so I reached down and I grab a rock and I throw it at the raccoon. I didn't hit it, but you would think that would have been enough for him to move. Still staring. I thought to myself, one of us is going to die in the next few minutes. So I reached for a baseball bat that I had next to the mattress. And I picked this thing up. And now this raccoon must have seen one of these before because that was enough for him to turn and run. Now what I didn't realize, because it was so dark, you could barely see your hand in front of your face, that there must have been many other raccoons that were in this party because as he turned and ran, apparently there were many other raccoons began to turn and run. There was like a stampede of raccoons out of our campsite. It's like, is that snoring that I hear coming out of Vanessa's tent? Yeah. So we get up in the morning and Vanessa's like, how did you sleep? As I'm standing there holding my bat. We need that marriage life group. Jesus, for three years, three, never had a place to call home. Three years, from town to town, from city to city. Sure, they 
People took them in at times, but you realize that most of the time they just slept on the road along the way. He made so many sacrifices for you and for me. Selfless. Listen to this verse. Matthew 6, 31. So don't worry about these things, he says. Now, you would think what comes next are the list of luxuries, right? Don't worry about these things. And he would have listed some excesses in life. But he doesn't. He says, don't worry about what you will eat. Don't worry about what you will drink. Don't worry about what you will wear. I don't know about you, but on my list, those are necessities. They're not luxuries. Jesus lived his life in such a way where he was willing to give up anything that would afford him a greater opportunity to reach other people with the message of eternal life. You would think that one person, after three years of watching him live such a selfless life, would have showed up just for the chance that he would be raised to life. He was perfect. He was miraculous. He was selfless. He could not have been more resolute. I think sometimes that we read these stories in the Bible and we've been to a lifetime of Easter services and I think sometimes that, that we develop this misperception about Jesus' intentions as if he intended it to be a surprise. As, as if he, he wanted to kind of shock them, that, 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 that he wanted to, to, like a surprise party of sorts, right? Maybe something like this. Yeah. If it were 2017, maybe this is what he would have done. Steps out of the tomb, takes a selfie, posts it to his Instagram, and he's thinking, they're going to be so surprised. This is going to be great. No, no, no. From the time he started his ministry, you know what he was telling people? Hey, I'm going to die. And on the third day, I'm coming back. When we read this verse, and we're going to read it in just a minute, it's not as though he said this one time. And it's as if that maybe they just missed it, and they weren't, they weren't paying attention like some of you now. Right? It's easy. Right, Our minds wander. We daydream. We're sitting and listening. But this is just the human experience. We can't possibly take it all in. Maybe it was like that for them. Now, I'm not going to read all of these verses for the sake of time, but you can download this. Every week we put our outline online. You can get it through the website, citylifeva.com. But his first year of ministry, Jesus began to speak of his death and his resurrection through parables of sorts. We have John 2, 18 to 22, and then we have Matthew 12, 39 to 40, right? He compares himself to the temple. And he talks about Jonah, just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days, so the Son of Man will be, right? It's, it's a little bit... Parable-esque. It's not necessarily direct. So maybe we would say, well, they didn't understand some of Jesus' parables all the time. Maybe they were confused. 
Then you get to Mark 8, 31 and Luke 9, 22 and John 10, 17 to 18. You get to Matthew 16, 21. And let me read that one to you. From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders and the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law, that he would be killed, but on the third day he would be raised from the dead. As a parent, ever get frustrated with your kids? Now, I know as a parent, you've never said this, but in the Misho household, it's been repeated more than once, how many times do I have to say? Anybody else use that phrase? Oh yeah, some of you were using it on the way here today. Jesus, over and over and over, again and again, and again, and again, and again, and again, said to the world, I'm going to die, and on the third day, I'm coming back. He said it so much that if you remember the text that we read to open, that the people that were trying to kill him actually posted the guard at the tomb because they themselves remembered that he said it. Everybody knew what Jesus had said. I'm going to die, and I'm coming back. Where's the one person that would show up just for the chance to be the one who saw it? Can you imagine? What if just one of them had come and had been there in that moment, the guards flee, and Jesus himself steps out of the tomb. But no one came. No one. No one. The greatest moment in history fell silent because everyone chose fear and doubt. I think about awkward conversations that I would have had if I had been there. I would have said, can somebody go get me Joseph of Arimathea? Joe, could we talk for a minute? Let me love on you for a minute. Right? Our city life phrase. Appreciate the lending of the tomb. Very nice gesture. But that stone, come on, Joe. That had to have been an incredible upgrade. It took angels and an earthquake to move that thing out of the way. Joe, come on, you were there when I said I'm gonna be raised to life, so I'm confused about why you would have picked a rock that big if you knew I was coming out. Now maybe Joe, he thinks on his feet, Jesus, I just wanted to make the miracle all the bigger. John gives us an interesting detail. Tells us that, that Joe wasn't in the tomb by himself when Jesus' body was still lifeless. Nick was there, Nicodemus. Joe and Nick were in there together. They brought a hundred pounds of burial spices. John tells us this. It takes one pound of burial spice to prepare a body, according to the ancient, one pound. They had a hundred, right? Jesus is like, come on, Joe, wait. It's gonna take thousands of years for this stuff to wear off. I smell like death everywhere I go, it's embarrassing. 
Who does this to somebody who believes that they're going to come back to life? Now you might say, Mary came the next morning and they had burial spices. What's that about? I don't know. Because she was there when Joe and Nick took Jesus' body in and they had prepared him. Why she would have more burial spices, we'll never know. That would be a conversation I could see Jesus wanting to have with Mary. What's that behind your back? Nothing. Right? Stepping a little of this. Are those more burial spices? Weren't you there when I said I was coming back? Now Mary's story is all the more interesting because not only is Mary Magdalene there when Joe and Nick are preparing Jesus' body for an eternal rest and the stone gets rolled in front, she goes back on Sunday morning and, and sometimes Mary's story is, is celebrated as this great woman of faith is the first one to come, but we must not forget she did not come expecting him to be alive because if she had, she wouldn't have brought more burial spices. These, you would think she would have brought a fresh pair of clothes. Because when Lazarus came out, he had been in there for four days. I'm telling you, it was a little gamey. <laughs> Nothing of anyone's actions indicated that they had any expectation that he was coming back. An angel said to Mary, He's not here because he's alive, he's risen. Mary runs, goes back to the disciples, and says, I saw an angel, he's alive. No, 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 she doesn't say that. She says, crying, they've stolen his body and I don't know where they put him. It was an angel, Mary. Come on. She goes back a second time with Peter and John and some other ladies. She gets there, right? John and, and Peter run in, and they've now left, and two angels come for Mary. Let's send, send in the second one, right? Mary, he's alive. He's alive. He's risen. Do you know how Jesus finds Mary in the garden, crying? She thinks he's the gardener. She's, he says, why are you crying? He says, because they've taken his body and I don't know where they've laid him. If it's me there, right? Patience has a limit. It's United Airlines all over again. I just had to do it, right? I had to do it. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. No one, no one believed that he was coming back. So, so this week, I'm right here in this moment, praying and working on this message and studying, and Tuesday the car was getting inspected, and so Vanessa was dropping me off, and she says, what are you preaching on this weekend? I said, I have no idea, and she looked at me, and she said, you know, it's Easter, right? Oh, well, yeah, hey, thanks for the pressure. But I do the same thing every year. I, I, you, sometimes the week before, sometimes the week of, I just open and I start in the Gospels and I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and their account of the resurrection story. And every year, I, I feel like God just helps me to see something I've never seen before. I've never stopped to think about what it was like when Jesus came out of the tomb. Not once. What was it like for him? Why did no one come? 
I thought this message was going to go in this, this direction of, of, of how do we deal with discouragement in this life, but it was in this moment, it was on Wednesday, I felt like Jesus spoke these words to me. I've never heard his audible voice, but I feel his voice. And this is what he said, Fred, you haven't found the reasons why I should have been upset with people. Yes, I was perfect and miraculous and selfless and resolute, but these are not the reasons for me to be disappointed in people who didn't believe in me. What you found are the reasons why too few people break through to greater things. The realm of the Magos Ergon, living extraordinary lives and doing extraordinary things. And then the first verse that came to mind, right, is John 14, 12, where Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing, but they will do even greater things than these. Because I'm going to the Father. How about Ephesians 3.20? Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above. It's the best definition of extraordinary you're ever going to find. Exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we could ever ask or think according to the power that works in us. These reasons aren't the reasons why Jesus should have been devastated. They're the reasons why we miss out on greater things. In the Greek, it's this phrase, megos ergon. Now, we unpacked that word megos all over the place in December when we were talking about a great sign, right? Megos semian. Now, it's megos ergon. It's the word that gives us ergonomics. It's the word for things or works. And Jesus says, right, mega, that's a big word. That much bigger, not a little bit bigger, but a lot bigger. Jesus says, you're gonna do greater things. Megos ergon. I don't know about you, but When I get to the end of my life, I want to be able to look back and have some sense that I had some seasons of life that could only be described as Magos Ergon. Some seasons in life that that, that maybe I would say, maybe God would say, that was extraordinary. Not because of who I am, but because of yielding to his power at work in me. And so I began to realize that because Jesus was perfect, I've got to be willing to work hard at living well if I ever want to see extraordinary things in this life. That his example to us is the pathway to the extraordinary. Because wasn't that what the resurrection was? It's the biggest Magos, Magos Ergon moment in history. It's the most exceedingly abundantly above moment in history. And Jesus' path to those moments is our path to follow. We're not ever going to be perfect, but we've got to work hard at living well. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. You might say, well, maybe it wasn't hard for Jesus to face temptation. You should check out the story in Matthew chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Now, the verses that precede that tell the story of Jesus being led away into the desert by the Holy Spirit after his baptism. He fasts for 40 days in the desert. And it's then that Satan himself comes. Tempts him with what the Bible talks about, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, the big three. He got hit with them all at one time. The Bible says that Jesus was so exhausted that angels had to come and care for him. Don't tell me that temptation wasn't hard for him. 
Don't tell me that even in his divinity that he was completely vulnerable to his humanity. He worked hard at living well. He lived a perfect life. We're not ever going to reach that place, but we've got to follow in his footsteps so that when temptation comes, we've got to be willing to break a sweat to resist it. And it's not just to not do the things that we're not supposed to do. Come on, it's about doing the stuff we should, which is why we're in this series, picking up with it next week on discipleship and these pathways. If you put these 12 pathways to work in your life, there's going to be days where you're tired because you have to work hard to live well. If you want to break through to the realm of the Magos, Ergon, you've got to be willing to work hard. I've got to be willing to work hard at living well because he was miraculous. Are you ready for this one? We've got to be willing to prove ourselves to others. Oh, yeah. Anybody here ever said, oh, I don't have to prove myself to you? Mm-hmm. I have. I felt it a lot more than I've said it at times. Jesus did miracles for a lot of reasons, but you know one of the reasons why he did miracles? To prove himself to the world. If the son of the living God has an expectation that's placed upon him by the creator of the universe, that he's got to be willing to prove himself to people that are unworthy and undeserving, how much more should we? John 10, 37 to 38, don't believe me unless I carry out my father's work, Jesus said. Verse 38, but if I do his work, believe in the evidence of the miraculous works I have done. Even if you don't believe me, even if you don't believe me, right, believe these works, There's going to be times in your life where God expects you to prove yourself to other people. It has nothing to do whether or not they deserve it. It has everything to do with the responsibility that God has placed upon you to reach that person with a message of eternal life. If we make the standard of whether or not the person deserves the effort for me to prove myself to them, we will seldom do it. But if we change the question to God, is this someone that you want me to reach or are you going to send them to someone else as I've been praying that you would for the last three months? And God says, nope, it's you. How about when we fail, when we make mistakes, when we do things that violate other people's trust? Some of you are in this room right now and your struggle is because you've made mistakes and you just keep saying to the world, let's just forgive and forget and move on. And God says, no, 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 no. That's part of it. But you gotta prove yourself. You gotta earn the right for trust. If Jesus, who was perfect, had to prove himself to the world, we who are flawed, how much more do we? We're never going to see greater things. We're not going to break into the realm of the Magos Ergon unless we're willing to work hard to live well, unless we're willing to prove ourselves to others. Because he was selfless, we have to make sacrifices that seem unfair. John 13, one through five, before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come. This is Thursday night, just this past Thursday in the Christian calendar. The hour had come for him to leave and return to his father. He loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the father had given him authority over everything, and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, and 
wrapped a towel around his waist and poured water into a basin and began to wash the feet of the disciples. What? He's the son of the living God. He stooped to one of the basest responsibilities that even servants in Jesus' day would be called to do. I love how this text goes on and on about how much as he loves the disciples, but it doesn't jump to then Jesus went around the table and gave everybody a hug and a kiss. Not that affection isn't an important part of love, but affection without selfless service is no love at all. Jesus knew that the affection part, if you love someone, that came naturally. But he was saying is if you really love people, you've got to be willing to make sacrifices that seem unfair. There's times where we're willing to make sacrifices because we have these moments where we have this sense of nobility. We have this sense of compulsion to do the right thing. But Jesus is saying even when you're not motivated in the moment to do the right thing, you still have to do it. And sometimes it's going to be a sacrifice that doesn't seem fair. And so many times we get trapped in this, 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 this fight of comparison where we're looking at other people and we're saying, why don't they have to go through things that are unfair? It seems like it's only me. Don't get trapped in that place. Can you imagine if Jesus had gotten trapped in that place? We do the sacrifice even if it seems unfair, that God puts in front of us because we know this is the path that Jesus himself walked and we want to walk it too because we should have an expectation that God has created us for the Magos Ergon. He did not create us for the mediocre, for mediocrity. He, did, he didn't create us for the average. He created us for seasons of greater things. Are we gonna live in that place forever? I don't think so. Is that gonna, we're gonna get to a place where we cross the threshold and that just defines who we are forever? Yeah, not until we get to heaven. But there's supposed to be seasons in our lives where we feel like we're walking in the extraordinary and this is the pathway to get there. Because Jesus was resolute, we must refuse to resent our calling. We must refuse to resent our calling. Now this verse might seem an odd choice, but I'm gonna explain it in just a minute, so bear with me. What sorrows await you Chorazin and Bethsaida, for if the miracles that I had done to you, I had done in the wicked town of Tyre and Sidon, their people would have repented of their sins long ago, clothing themselves in burlap and throwing ashes on their heads to show their remorse. I came across that verse not too long ago as part of our reading plan. I'm reading through the New Testament in the year this year is the reading plan I picked. And, and, I, and I read that verse, and all of a sudden I realized, wow, that's harsh. Because really what God is saying is that if he had done more miracles, they would have repented from their sin. So why didn't he? If he knew that he could have gotten them there, if he had done more for them, why didn't he do it? Because God is not interested in making this life easy for us. He's interested in making it meaningful. He's interested in making it fulfilling. He's not ever going to put anything on us that's more than what we can bear, but he gives us just enough because he wants us to join in the effort. And there are days for you, there's days for me where the calling of the season that we're in, we resent it. For some of you, your calling is to just be a better dad. 
And that's a great place to live. A better husband, a better mother, a better wife, a better student, a better son, a better daughter, a better neighbor. We don't like those seasons because they're thankless sometimes. Because we get in that season, we don't like to use the word that this is my calling because there's a sense of obscurity that's connected to it. Don't forget that for the first 30 years of Jesus' life, he lived in obscurity. Nobody knew who he was. Nobody. He was still perfect. He was still the son of the living God. 30 years in obscurity, he never resented it. Can you imagine the glory that Jesus was accustomed to in the heavens before he came? All of creation worshiped him. 30 years on this earth, he's just the carpenter's son down the street. If we're going to break through into the realm of the Magos Ergon, if we're going to see extraordinary things, we've got to be willing to walk through the seasons of obscurity, not resenting the place that God has us today, believing that there's another season that's waiting for us that could only be described by things like exceedingly abundantly above. Chris is going to come back up and hop on the keys Listen to this verse. Matthew 7, 13 and 14. You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad. And its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult. Oh, it's hard. You know why it's hard? Because living well is hard. You know why it's hard? Because proving ourselves to people that we feel are undeserving, it's hard. You know why it's difficult? It's because there's times where God puts sacrifices in front of us that just seem unfair. Sometimes it seems like it's the HRBT in the middle of the summer. It's sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, bumping a parking lot of selfless sacrifice just waiting for us, right? We see it. We like, I get through this one and there's just more waiting for me. No, no, no. The road is narrow. It's difficult. It's hard because there's times where we want to resent the calling of the season that we're in. Days where it's just about dirty diapers and laundry and the three-hour battle for our kids to eat those stinking vegetables that the Growing Kids God's Way class said they had to eat. Those days. Days where you're coming home from work and your boss has just been ugly again. Other people that do less work are getting the promotions. The kids in school that are sitting next to you and cheating and getting better grades. So they're going to be higher up in the, in, the, in the rating for when it comes time to apply for college. And you have this thought of why do I even try? 
times you go out again and again and again and again and again to make the team and your name's always on the list of the person that gets cut. The gateway to life is narrow and the road is difficult and only a few ever find it. Just a few. In fact, on the day of Jesus' resurrection, on the very first Easter, he was the only one who was there. You might say right now, if we could go back in time, I would want to be there for him. If, if we could somehow travel back through history, we would say, I want to I wanna be there for him. So he doesn't have to come out of that tomb to a lifeless, empty graveyard. You know what Jesus says to you tonight? You don't need to go back in time to show up for him. You can show up for him today. You can show up for him tomorrow. You can show up for him every day for the rest of your life. Every time you make the decision to work hard to live well, you show up for Christ on the day of his resurrection. Every day that you choose to prove yourself to undeserving people just for the opportunity to share with them the message of eternal life, you show up for him. Every time you're willing to lay down your life and make that sacrifice that seems so unfair. Every time you do, you're showing up for him on the day of his resurrection. Every time, whatever God has called you to for the season of life that you're in, and it seems absolutely overwhelmingly unbearable but because you've been going to those life groups that we're getting to launch you can reach out to someone who can begin to encourage you and walk in that place with you like Galatians 6 talks about bearing one another's burdens and you can say I'm not going to resent this season that I'm in I'm not going to resent the calling that God has for me because I'm going to show up for Jesus on his resurrection it's easy for us to look back into history and judge those who did not come. Where the work that we should be doing is judging ourselves for all the days that we stay home. He rose from the dead for you. And today you have an opportunity to make a decision to resolve in your heart that you're gonna show up for him every day for the rest of your life. Stand with me. Father, we stand in the sacredness of this moment. Not knowing the reason why everyone who's here came. Some at the invitation of a friend, some out of a sense of obligation because of the significance of this day. Maybe some who, maybe that, that, that they, they've just been away for too long and they're saying now it's time to come home. Maybe some that they've, they've come because they're so overwhelmed with guilt and remorse and they're just, they're desperate for redemption. Maybe some, they're here because they're thinking, this is the day that I'm going to make my vow of devotion to Christ. Some, maybe they're coming because Pastor Fred's been beating them up for the last three weeks on the Sermon on Gathering. 
but for whatever reason we came. We're all here. And God, what you did for Shanika that she shared with us through that dramatic monologue, do for us. What you did for Peter when you restored him after he denied, do for us. What what you did for the world in Acts chapter 2 where your Holy Spirit was poured out beyond measure, do for us. Father, let it be that this Easter of 2017 isn't just going to be another Christian holiday that comes and goes, but that for all of us, it's going to be the beginning of a march towards the Magos Ergon. It's going to be the beginning of a march towards the realm of the extraordinary. It's going to be the beginning of our journey towards a season of exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ever ask or imagine. And even on the days where it feels like it did for you that no one else is there that will remember that's not why we're doing it for their applause because we do it for you. Forgive us, empower us, fill us, heal us, give us hope. In Jesus' name, come on. And everyone said, amen. Happy Easter.